episode 48 of 18th Wall Productions presents the television crossover universe on the Grand Gignol Network. Coming to you live from behind the chrome microphone of excellence, we have James Boyachuk, CEO of Wall 18th Wall Productions, and the other incredibly hard to pronounce weird hodgepodge of French words, numbers, and productions, Ben Casson. Yo, glad to be here. We represent the TVCU crew, which is a team of crossovers who devote way too much of their time to connecting the dots through official crossovers and Easter eggs, all in order to demonstrate a shared fictional reality that we call the television crossover universe. M.H. Norris has decided to still stay wherever she is because she got to witness a proposal. That's very thrilling. Congratulations to the happy couple, at least assuming the woman said yes. I don't actually know. So... If she said no, I'm sorry, buddy. There are other Cthulhu's in the sea. Sink into someone else's infinite ethos. (laughs) Now, so far as I know, the only thing that either of us have to shamefully plug, shamelessly plug, rather, is that our very first release, Those Who Live Long Forgotten, has finally come out in print. This was a long time coming, partly through the struggle of finding a good graphic designer who could turn in an outstanding design to go with Jason Beneke's truly breathtaking work of art. We got burned with some other less-than-stellar designers early on, but I think Elias Graphics more than lived up to our expectations, and I think it was worth the wait for this release to finally make its way into print. Nice to see where we began finally fully fleshed out in physical form. Yes. I think it is one of Elias Graphics' best designs to date, which is really saying something, considering such really lovely designs as Just So Stories or After Avalon or Dead West, which she designed the logo and design for. So, that is about... Well, I should say, actually, this is a story which pretty much every listener will love to have their hands on, as it features multiple crossover stories, as indeed it's based on old characters coming to life in the present or at least the recent past. So the story begins with Roe McNulty's absolutely fantastic ruin, or the rise of the House of Karnstein, which is... A complete reinvention slash sequel to Sheridan Le Fanu's very famous novella, Carmilla. The original modern vampire novella and the originator of every single last lesbian vampire trope. (laughs) Hannah Lakoff's The Mirror, which we've gone on before. See our excellent interview with Hannah from a few months ago. And really, definitely one of my five favorite short stories, if not my favorite short story. It's it lacks for nothing. Applause. Just don't pun too hard, or you'll be the new Chris. <laughs> um, a story I wrote to fill in a gap in the collection, which features Sherlock Holmes in the 1950s, old, brittle bone, but still working to solve a new kind of case, how to survive. Um, Nick Wiseman's the White City, which features the Greek gods in the ruins of the 1893 World's Fair, and Gabrielle Frejin's 
story about the Greek monsters Charybdis and her friend now stuck in human bodies in the modern world. So I think I don't know if I would say it's one of my favorite books that we put out, but of our early books, I think it's one that outside of our expectations ended up representing where we would go the best. Yes, I'd say that you can never look back on your first step as your greatest or farthest, but it holds a special place in, I think, both of our hearts. Especially for Hannah's story. Oh yeah, love that story. I think single-handedly set the tone of everything else we would ever look for. We love all you other authors, too, submitted, and thank you so much again for that. You and really I gave us our beginning. And, of course, the story that was recently nominated for... Nominated and, I believe, may have won in the year's best horror contest, Pedro... What is Pedro's last name? I always have trouble pronouncing it, because I'm... I believe it's pronounced Iniguez. Yes, Iniguez. We're sorry, Pedro. We're very silly white men. We don't know how to pronounce real words. But, yes, also that story, which was recently shortlisted, I believe nominated, and I believe won a spot in the coveted Year's Best Horror Collection, edited by Ellen Datlow. Which is one of the highest heights a horror author can ever reach, and it is well-deserved for this story. We didn't know it would be award-winning when when we accepted it, and it didn't win at first, but definitely a deserving contender. This is one of those cases where submitting an old story as a reprint pays off in spades. So, huge congratulations, Pedro, if you're listening. And I believe that is all we have for any kind of plugging, and we can move into our interview with John Linwood Grant. Somewhat unusually for the show, we received a letter. Now, before we get to our guest, I think it's worth an answer in full. Dear Television Crossover Universe Podcast, I am 58 years old. Some of my little friends say there is no Christmas wasp. Papa says, if you see it in the sun, it's so. Please tell me the truth. Is there a Christmas watch? Christmas wasp. J. Linseed Grant. Well, yes, listener, there is a Christmas wasp. He exists as certainly as love and generosity and stings exist, and you know they all abound to give your life its highest beauty and joy. Alas, how dreary would the world be if there were no Christmas wasps? It would be as dreary as if there was no angry, buzzing hives. Not believe in the Christmas wasp? You might as well not believe in Grey Dogs or Mr. Dry. You might get your papa to hire men to watch all the hives on Christmas Eve to catch the Christmas wasp. But even if they did not see the Christmas wasp, what would that prove? Nobody sees Santa Claus, but that is no sign there is no Christmas wasp. The most real things in the world are those that neither children nor men can see. Did you ever see Shagas dancing on the hearth? Of course not, but that's no proof they are not there. Nobody can conceive or imagine all the wonders that are unseen and unseeable in the world. You may tear apart the gray dog and see what makes the noise and running inside, but there is a veil covering the on-seed world which not the strongest man or even the most united strength of all the strongest men that ever lived could tear apart. Only faith, fancy, terror, horror, and the dark can push aside that curtain and view and picture the supernatural beauty and glory beyond. Is it real? Ah, listener, in this world there is nothing else real and abiding. 
No Christmas, Wasp. Thank Cthulhu he lives, and he lives forever. Ten million years in a... Ten million years from now, in the dark aeons. Nay, ten times ten million years from now, he will continue to sting the hearts of men. Now, we turn to our guest, John Lidwood Grant, who, as you may know, is one of the editors of the what promises to be excellent Occult Detective Quarterly, author of the last Edwardian series, which has been off to very popular attention and great reviews, and it has been doing lots of other things. He is incredibly busy. <laughs> so, John, what do you want from the Christmas Wasp this year? Uh, immunity, I think. <laughs> I'd like to be immune from his attentions, but uh, unfortunately he's a capricious thing, so uh, it's not actually up to me. Uh, he doesn't care. So, if I get it in the neck, I get it in the neck. <laughs> ben, would you like to start us with the first actual question? Uh, hmm. You sure you don't actually want a big red, red sting from the Christmas wasp for Christmas? I think you deserve it. <laughs> You've worked all year long applying bug spray? No, nah, but in all, in all seriousness and ceasing to speak about wasps, if at all possible... <laughs> Uh, Occult Detective Quarterly, an exciting project. I mean, it's had what I would call in minor league terms a meteoric rise on its Kickstarter. Uh, an exciting project uh, for which there's still time, well, a little bit of time to support. By the time this comes out, there is no time. You missed it. You missed it all. Now you just have to <laughs> wait for it to come out like a proper person. Go stand in the queue. This would be a good time to address the fact that your current co-host believes in time travel and asserts its existence at all points possible. <laughs> this is true. No, but it's had an incredible response. You know, there's a lot of excitement brewing for this magazine, which you really don't see in today's market for literary magazines like you used to uh, back, you know, before the death of the uh, literary review section of newspapers now which mm. there's only really new york times um what do you attribute to its success thus far and what do you have to say to the people who've supported it up to this point uh right well i mean we are obviously delighted and uh, there have been some very vociferous supporters um we've been really pleased with the response and and indeed we've we've had support from other magazines from a lot of brilliant writers um, a lot of brilliant artists as well and it was a risk it, it, it's a test there are a number of new weird fiction magazines coming out and we didn't want to add to uh, add to that pool in a sense um, we're aiming very specifically at an exploration of the uh, the, the whole occult detective field and I, I, I guess in some ways that we straddle an, a number of niche interests um, because our area covers uh, your classic occult detective and supernatural investigator, but we've also got room for the pulp, the noir, um, uh, the grizzled detective with his uh, uh, best friend is a you know a bottle of whiskey and so on. <laughs> games walking into rooms, or possibly the other way around, um, which indeed we are looking at, which is dame detectives with dodgy-looking guys walking into their offices. And then we move on to contemporary work. 
there's the whole area. There's, of course, all the stuff which is built up around Constantine, um, the, the, the characters from the comic and graphic novels. You can take it further than that. Um, it, it, it's a wide, small field, <laughs> which, which is very difficult to explain because it's 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 a little niche, um, but it's a niche which has so many corners to explore. Um, you know, I've already just mentioned a hundred. I would say that it's a puddle about five inches deep, but wide mm-hmm. and non-lucidian. Yeah, that would work. That would work for me. <laughs> I mean, now we're talking about 120, 150 years of, of possibilities, and we've we've already had stories covering that whole range. So it, it, it's an oddity, and I, I hope that because it stands out a bit, um, people have said, oh, right, well, that's a cool idea. Uh, we haven't seen that before. <laughs> um, yeah, we'll, we, we'll see. I mean, we've certainly got a huge range of stories, um, there's very little in common in any of the stories in issue one, um, apart from the fact that they do genuinely involve in some way or another investigation of the dark, the weird, the occult, the supernatural. Considering Karnaki is our show's mascot, I imagine most of our listeners are familiar with the concept, but what is an occult detective and why does it appeal to you? Yeah, that's a difficult question. Um... Thankfully, you're the man with the difficult answers. Uh, well, I've got the answers, but whether they're the ones you want or not are a different matter. Um, to me, personally, a, a, an occult detective at core uh, is someone who actually is a form of Karnaki in one incarnation or another. Because, of course, uh, Karnaki is primarily a true detective. Um I mean, I've written about this uh, at length uh, recently. He, he used techniques, methods, um, science, observation, logic. Um, he didn't wander around going, ooh, look, it's all psychic, that's scary. Um, he, he had an approach to things. Um, and so that is one, uh, and perhaps to me, the core form of occult detective. He looks at things which do not fit within the normal world. Uh, the occult, the abnatural, the supernatural. I always love to watch this term the abnatural, which is <laughs> one of my, my favourites. And he investigates it. And I mean, I was writing about this only ooh, last week, I think. One of, one of the most interesting things is that if you look at Sherlock Holmes, people don't get this right. Technically, Holmes does not say that the supernatural does not exist. Oh, um, yes. Um, what he says is that it's not within their scope. He debunks a lot of the supernatural and proves in a lot of cases um, that what others think is, is something occult or scary is, in fact, nefarious doings. Because Kanaki himself does that. Um and there is more in common between the two than you'd think. What Holmes says is that if it is supernatural, uh, his approach doesn't apply. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it, it's not their game. Um, Kanaki, in a sense, proves Holmes wrong. Uh, he says, okay, there are things which we can't get our heads around, but we can start to classify, to investigate, to respond to them, to look at protections from them. Um, and so I call him Holmes Plus. 
which will get me into a lot of trouble with a lot of Holmes fans, especially as I write Sherlock Holmes fiction. <laughs> <laughs> so I shouldn't have said any of that. Yes, the fans of BBC show Sherlock are gunning for you immediately, and they're in your country. No, no, no. They all are into super hulock. They're perfectly fine with this. Well, <laughs> unfortunately, they're all I think you still need to run and hide. Yeah, to I, I have a huge summarize. Respect. Sorry. Summarize. Like it seems like, like Holmes is basically saying, like, if there's a supernatural thing, you know, like he's not the tool for it, and one could look at it as Karnacki is the tool for any case where, like, Holmes doesn't apply to the supernatural element to it. You know, the detective answer to such cases. Yeah, uh, absolutely, and I, I was going to say that I am, in fact, a huge fan of canonical homes, of genuine home stories with no occult element whatsoever, um, and I write some of those. Um, I do distinguish between the two, but I, I think it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting twosome, um, and uh, it is curious, as I said recently, uh, Karnaki is a character... I don't know whether you read any of this, but I was, I was looking into it, and essentially there are more uh, pastiches, homages, and stories developing Karnaki or Karnaki's ideas than there are any other detective of the period except Holmes himself, uh, which is quite astounding. Oh, yes, especially since they all came about in, say, the last 15 or so years. Well, we, we counted 150, 160 straight away, and that's without odd ones tucked in anthologies here and there. Oh, um, yes. So, uh, quite fascinating. It's uh, an my, astounding jump in popularity. Well, my interest Please. was that, you know, you have Holmes, and everybody knows him, but from that period, um, and, you know, we could talk quite a wide period until at least the 20s, um, uh, Karnaki is is still, if not more, um, popular and recognised. Oh, and that yeah. doesn't seem to be shrinking. Oh no, you see him appearing more and more places as time goes on. Mm. And of course he's been incorporated in comics, um, into the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comics. He, he, he crops up now as a, a side character, a historical note, in all sorts of crossover and pastiche areas. So, uh, pretty weird. <laughs> <laughs> weird oh, yeah. fiction. Yes, absolutely. So, I think it really speaks to the... Oh, go ahead. Well, <laughs> I, I was going to say that, just to say that, although that's, you know, a, a, a core area, um, the other term I used um, when we were selling Occult Detective was, of course, the doomed meddler. And... There are people who poke their nose in uh, with some attempt at trying to uh, put a logical framework on these situations. And in fact, it all goes horribly wrong, because they can't, or there isn't. Uh, they are occult detectives too, but most of them die. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think that's a common theme you see in most of these stories, you know, like the fodder characters, even just like from the perspective of the main characters, like a lot of the uh, Occult series have a character who's basically accept the mortality rate of the job he's undertaken. Mm. And you see that like as part of the tension. And as for uh, why you know, 
Karnacki's had such a revitalization and why, if anything, historically he seems to be beating out Holmes, although a lot of the world would outcry, no, no, you're wrong. I think it speaks to, like, in general, if anything, while Holmes is basically defined by his lack of supernatural or luck or anything beyond his deductive abilities, you know, his scientific reasoning, the reader populace as a whole craves the supernatural, something beyond what they can perceive or conceive. There are some nice ideas going around. I mean, uh, I'll have to mention, I've, I've just, um, I'm having a story in uh, a new Holmes collection, Holmes Away From Home, from Bellinger Books. And one of the things which intrigued me about that was that they wanted to cover the great hiatus after the Reichenbach Falls. And I wasn't terribly keen on writing more straight homes, which is sort of poked in between existing stories. But this is a whole new set of, of stories in that period, um, 1891 to 1894, where Holmes disappears. And then, of course, in 94, he comes back and says, oh, by the way, Watson, I wasn't dead, actually. Um, <laughs> I had things to do. Um, and that looks to be a cracking collection because it, it's allowed uh, us writers to explore Holmes not in supernatural ways, but in terms of uh, certainly very strange and very different settings, if you're with me. Um, it, it's a very it. uneven collection, but have you ever stumbled into my Sherlock Holmes? Not sure. It's very interesting. It comes with the idea that every story is narrated by someone who isn't Watson, and it's their ah, own right. idea of who he is. Yeah. So it's a very uneven collection. I think you'd like it because one of it, one of my more favorite, one of I wouldn't say favorite, but one of the pastiches that's more memorable and I certainly enjoyed has Holmes has a Holmes adventure narrated by a semi-illiterate cab driver who at the same time he's driving Holmes around on different cases is trying to game a dog race. So he is trying to hide this from Holmes in the middle of a <laughs> massive investigation. <laughs> oh, that sounds rather fun, yes. I mean, I, I've read a lot of the uh, variants as well, the um, the, the gaslight uh, sort of grimoire stuff and the, the uh, shadows over Baker Street and... Oh, yes. Uh, you know, they... <sighs> Sometimes it works, sometimes it fails utterly. I have uh, a theory on that. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to spit this out because sometimes okay. I get the need to talk. I think the problem, especially with Shadows Over Baker Street, if you compare the ones that work and don't work, mm. I think the dividing line, whether it's actually in canon or it's total, non total out there goofiness like Neil Gaiman's A Study in Emerald, is the difference between perfectly bouncing the elements of both worlds versus giving preference to one or the other. Yes. Like, I think the entire reason a study in Emerald works, despite how out there bonkers it is, is because the Lovecraft and the Holmes are perfectly bounced and neither one outweighs the other. Yes. And I, I, I think... I'm going to be horribly self-referential, but when I was writing a study in Grey, um, the whole point was to to have both, without denigrating or lessening either, um, both the occult or psychic side and the genuine Holmes as a character and, and a set of methods. And I, I think that's very important to get right. Oh yes. 
Holmes is easily a character that can like overtake any uh, mythology or established characters, but it really is best when you play to his strengths of just adding a little deductive reasoning to any universe, which is always like up for grabs. You know, you can really splash a little Holmes into any story and make it a little more intriguing and informative. I'd say. Famously, that's why he's not in the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Alan Moore discovered that simply by having Holmes there, everyone else becomes a secondary or territory character. He overpowers <laughs> everything. It's it's a, it's a difficult one, that. And, um, you know, when I write the sort of crossover stuff I do, I, I, I try and ensure that everyone gets a fair deal. Um, but I, I do like to think, as a, <clears throat> seriously, there is a whimsy, uh, that Karnaki is perhaps one of the few of the occult investigators, psychic detectives, whatever you want to call them, who Holmes might have had some sneaking admiration for. Uh, oh, yes. <laughs> he, he might have, he would have recognised Karnaki's uh, scientific approach, um, the technical equipment he used, all that sort of thing. And I, I think there, Holmes would have said, "Well, you know, at least the chaps." You know, on the on the right lines, it would be one of the slightly dismissive bits of praise that he gives to the cleverer um, police inspectors. Yes, <laughs> in his stories. Certainly. I, now, I also. We... No, sorry. No, no I was just going to say quickly. Um, I was mentioning the home story from home. Um, uh, David Markham was editing it. Is, is putting out something next year, I think, for charity, which I quite fancy having a go at. Which is apparently a collection of stories, all of which appear to be supernatural, but Holmes proves they're not. Oh, that's quite fun. Which sounded like a rather fun idea, so I might throw my hat in for that one. That was (laughs) it. (laughs) Make sure you send this to the editor. (laughs) (laughs) So, moving back to Occult Detective Quarterly. Um, First, do you want to have... Is there anything else you want to say about it? Be it your co-editor certain stories you really think the listeners would like to check out when the first issue comes out, or anything at all that tickles your fancy? Sure. Uh, I mean, there are a number of key things which I can say very quickly. I mean, one is that it's, it's been very much a labor of love between myself, uh, Sam Gafford, and um, Travis Naisler, if I pronounce his second name right. Um, Travis, Sam, and I have worked... Uh, very closely together on a sort of vision of what we wanted out of this. Um, I, I've been a bit of a front man. <laughs> and because I write the stuff as well, I suppose it, it, some of it fell to me. But uh, yeah, we've, um, we're adding artwork, which is, is one of the nice things, because we'd always wanted that from the start. We hit our first stretch goal. With a bit of luck, we'll hit our second, which means that we'll have some real quality commissioned art um, for some of the stories. And when I said earlier on that we, you know, have a range of stories, I can certainly tell you that um, we have a Teddy Grau story, um, which is effectively a contemporary, uh, how can I put it, um, linker to The King in Yellow, um, which is oh, a really, really nice. which is a really weird horror story. Um, yes, most very m- weird. M- most unusual. Um, we have a bit of classic but clever and reworked uh, classical fiction. 
um, from Amanda Deweese, who's uh, uh, produced a, a lovely piece, of a twist on a haunted room story, uh, a period one. Um, we, of course, have Josh Reynolds, who returns with a brand new Royal Occultist story. Charles Always a highlight. Yeah, Charles St. Cyprian and uh, the, I don't know whether people can still use the word feisty, the um, awkward and argumentative Eve Galloglass, uh, the, the the woman who acts as his assistant and um, partner. Um, so we've got some terrific stuff coming, and there's there's a new Adrian Cole, uh, Nick Nightmare, um, classic later detective. So although they're all on theme, uh, as I said at the start, uh, readers will find, you know, a, a terrific range in there. Uh, I think it's almost impossible that they won't like one, if not all of them, um, because we're covering so many tastes. And now that we're going to get that illustrated as well, um, we should be on target for early December, I would think, um, to have that powering out all over the world. That sounds exciting. Mm. Um Speaking of the artwork, you know, they're going to be commissioning. I know, like, if you're, like, it was a stretch goal, you know, like, was a big thing in mind. Are there any art pieces that you've already had, like, just, like, planned out? Like, anything you want to, like, excite us about visually? Um, well, we've got a fantastic piece from Bob Freeman, who is an actual occult detective, I gather, um, for Amanda Deweese's period ghost story. Um, uh, Wayne Miller... M. Wayne Miller, who's um, worked an enormous amount with um, Willie Michael, uh, a, a renowned storyteller and worker in this area. Um, uh, Wayne's done some fantastic pieces uh, for book oh, covers, yes. internal illustrations, for dark regions, uh, all, all sorts of publishers. Um, and he's doing a specially commissioned piece to illustrate a story by Willie Michael and David Wilbanks. Uh, a most unusual story about a, a detective who you wouldn't quite call human. Um, I can't say any more than that. Um, so <laughs> Wayne's, Wayne's working on that. Um, we have a Baron Sandy story um, by a writer called Erin Vleck. Um, she's written a, a, a really interesting piece on uh, Baron Sandy and um, New Orleans. And Very nice. We've commissioned... Uh, a black artist, Stanley Weaver, um, to actually see if he can come up with uh, something which matches the strength of the story, um, because he thought it would be, you know, very appropriate. And we want to encourage art from all sorts of quarters and all sorts of people who are into this thing. Um, we're trying to be as uh, open and eclectic as we can, as you can probably tell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yes. As of this recording... You are actually less than a hundred dollars from your next stretch goal, so I think you're going to make it. Uh, Ninety-three dollars we we have to get, so I'm hoping we've got a week left, uh, nearly a week left. So I'm hoping we shall do that. We haven't got any more stretch goals. The rest of it is all about the quality of the final product. So very good. Um, you know, again, any good. of you time traveling angel investors who just want to pop into your magic box and donate a little, go ahead. <laughs> And go back and say, yes, you can still send us money. <laughs> Even if the Kickstarter is, we have no objections. You know, just look us up, ring us up, send us cash. Yeah, go on. <laughs> this is an official notice. Occult Detective Quarterly's official stance is that they are always open to free money. Yeah, or barter. 
You know, now, I imagine the official announcement is actually going to be between recording and when this finally airs. But one of the Nicole Petit's next collection, which we are very excited for, is... Oh, crap. I always want to give the wrong title. It is... Speakeasies and, and Spiritualists. Thank you very much. I should know that offhand, but I always want to say sock ops. I have to prevent myself from saying seances and sock ops. <laughs> the reason for that will become clear next year when we announce our upcoming slate, but for the time being, this collection is all about supernatural stories set in the 1920s. So that could mean supernatural mystery, supernatural horror, supernatural pulp, supernatural adventure, supernatural occult. Pretty much the wide gamut of stories in the 20s dealing with real-life 1920s either occult practices or, just as validly, the spookbuster culture started up by Harry Houdini and the chief of his secret ghost-busting police, the wonderful, amazing Rose Mecklenburg, who's quickly become one of my very favorite historical figures. And I will withhold from announcing the rest of the table of contents for the moment, except to say check out our website. But one of the stories in this collection is from the endlessly productive John Linwood Grant. Now, <laughs> would you like to tell us something about your story, what it's about? who's in it, and it's... I'm going to go with the word placement. Sure, yeah. Um, I, I, I enjoyed doing it. It was it, it, it's a, a bit of an experiment, really, because uh, my story's set in mid-twenties Harlem, um, and I guess what I was very interested in was the, uh, the culture there and the revival uh, around Harlem, both as a an oddity in the sense that it, it became almost a, a tourist attraction for white people, um, <laughs> sometimes wrongly so, and it also allowed the flourishing of a lot of black political thought, artistic thought, poets, writers, activists, and I, I thought about how I could handle this in relationship to the last Edwardian. Um, so because of the timeline and because I hadn't got to the mid-20s, um, I, I, I put together the next step in the last Edwardian, which was the, um, uh, is it, what's the word, is it eponymous? The, um, the, the, the title character of the last Edwardian himself, yes. Henry, um, in New York, lost and getting drunk uh, on, in a club on the edge of Harlem. Um, very dubious about some of the... Um, actual uh, entertainment approaches that some of the speakeasies had. Uh, finding himself in one which was um, what they used to call Black and Tan, which is a club where uh, white people and black people, people of any race, could meet, drink, relax. Uh, of which there were such joints. <laughs> and I thought, well, that was rather a cool idea, because Henry's... Um, very anti-oppressive practice when it comes to virtually anything. So I thought, well, this would suit him nicely. His hotel was, unless he went to a CD one, would be dry. He ends up there, and as a result, he gets drawn into um, a supernatural occurrence in the uh, club's 
well, the owner of the club's um, family. Uh, and I won't give too much away, but he becomes part of it. And what I didn't want to do um, is to have the uh, Edwardian white chap come in and save the day, as it were. Uh, the important point was he gets drawn in and involved in it. Um, but I suppose the key, one of the key players, uh, is one of my other characters, Mama Lucy, a hoodoo woman. Um, because I've always been fascinated by the hoodoo women. Uh, and by early blues and uh, you know they uh, the, the wonderful stuff uh, red threads and whiskey the, um, the crossroads and all that sort of thing um, there's a very rich and very deep law there uh, root workers um, she's a root worker and a lot of it was uh, similar in some ways to herbalists um, except that the, uh, the practices obviously with the, the hoodoo men and the hoodoo women, were aimed not just at general wellness or sickness, but also at those malign influences which may be seen as uh, demonic possession or psychic sickness or whatever. And so that's the story. It's called Hoodoo Man, because he accidentally ends up working with uh, Mama Lucy the Hoodoo Woman. Excellent. And it was rather, it was rather fun, and I hope it works. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. I'm going to repeat one of the comments that Nicole made while editing and while reading submissions. We had some stories with very questionable descriptions of women that makes you wonder if they ever met a woman and some very questionable female characters. And her comment was, finally, thank God, someone that can write women. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's terribly kind. I must admit, I, I feel quite cheered by that. <laughs> And I mean, it also helps that you didn't have multiple sentences struggling and failing to describe breasts. Oh, God, well, of course, with Occult Detective, <laughs> Occult Detective Quarterly, we were swamped with private detective, private investigator, PI stories. And to be honest, people, I mean, people sent us some fantastic stories. Um, they also sent some which, you know, needed more editing. But we did have a few which were basically the um, guy behind his office desk with his whiskey and his gun, and this broad walks in, her red hair over her shoulders, her breasts turned towards the light, you know. And <laughs> it, it, now, it can be done. It can be done if you're doing it with a sense of humor, a parody. Um, but if you just repeat the same tropes again and again... Um, it, it does. You do immediately think, oh, oh, here we go. You know, yep. she had she had gams on her, like you know. And I think, <laughs> no, 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 we don't want to go there. I, I want something more inventive. <laughs> yes. Okay. We're starting to move into near the end of our interview. So, sure. Ben, would you like to introduce one of John's upcoming projects? Yes, I was just about to. Uh, speaking of weird fiction, there's another project you'll be working on. Uh, with us in the future, uh, the project's currently been dubbed Imperial Weirds, working title, finish Which one will come out in the future. gives you the sense of what it's going to be, so you know yeah. what you're submitting. It has to do with, you know, British colonialists all well, over. John and, like, can tell straight. what it's about. It is yeah. his baby, after all. So tell us, what is this collection <laughs> about? What do you want? My little child. Yes. Um... <clears throat> Well, it came from an idle comment, actually, with a, 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 another author friend of mine, Matt Willis, who's going to be working with me on this, um, who'd written a historical naval fantasy book, 
Daedalus and the Deep. And we were chatting about this, and I said, well, you know, really, there isn't actually very much um, which reflects uh, the, the, that, that whole high Victorian empire and the strangeness which must be behind us. Um, and we looked around, and then I had a chat with James as well, and the fact is, there is, as far as we can tell, there is no collection or anthology um, which directly looks at that area. There are only a few scattered classical stories. Uh, now, whether it's been ignored because it's an awkward area, I don't know, but I, I immediately sort of put a proposal together because I thought, well, wow, this could be really fantastic if it was done right. I have um, the feeling what's behind it is most time people try to link weird fiction and Victorian, it lands in London and no one leaves London. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Sometimes with a suspiciously brilliant detective. <laughs> And some really bad Dick Van Dyke Mary Poppins accents and <laughs> all sorts of, you know, and you have to run across every London monument <laughs> throughout the entire story. So we have to have Big Ben and the Houses of Parliament and St. Paul's, you know, even though they're the sort of tiniest part of the city. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we, we, you know, this, this whole idea, strange empire, you might want to call it or whatever, um, we're still working on that one. But the whole idea was you have this 50, so it's a 50-year period, 1850s eight to 1905, when things changed a lot in the Edwardian era, um, uh, before our real conflict or doubts about links with Germany for the empire, where... Uh, the the flag went as the uh, you know the the same goes the sun never sets and we looked at uh, well I think we uh, I came up with a phrase didn't I which I probably can't remember is that you know the sun never sets because she carries her darkness with her the empire and so I I wanted to explore the experiences of people in imperial lands in that period um, and I think there's you know, a huge potential there, and we'll see what we get. Uh, and in fact, I think we'll get far too many stories because I also want to look at not just, uh, well, <laughs> not at all the jingoism. We don't want stories about oh how great the empire is, and we don't, <laughs> and we don't want stories which say oh the empire was absolute rubbish and we all hated it. We want stories which reflect humanity, the people involved. Um, I've realised something. Did you make this collection? Did you come up with it just to make sure you don't have to read a single submission about a PI? Well, that'll help a bit. (laughs) (laughs) At least I can enjoy myself digging through um, historical historical supernatural. Yes, and and I like that period anyway. Um, We hope that when as we put the introduction together, we're going to refer to a few. there's aspects of Kipling, for example, and some of the darker Wells and Kipling tales. But there's surprisingly little even written back then. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they come up with. Our other, and I, I will ram this in, because uh, you're saying what was my vision. Um, uh, very important to me, I've been in touch with uh, black American writers and Indian writers. Um, because I would really like to have at least one, if not more, stories which looked at different perspective. Um, one of the black writers has already suggested stories about the Shanti Wars, which were in West Africa. Um, 
in in the areas around Ghana and and uh, you know that sort of thing. And there is some terrific episodes and tales to be told there, um, which could be from the the native populations. Um, point of view, or from the Ashanti themselves, who were, um, you know, quite determined in their fighting against the British. In India, you have such a huge range from the absolute bottom of the social scale, the outcasts, um, to those Indians who worked very closely with the British. We're moving uh, into our last five minutes, so... Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. You're great. You could fill two hours. <laughs> no, yeah, but terrible. quickly tell us what you want from submissions, give our listeners an inside track into your mind, and then quickly tell us where you can be found online. Yes. Um, we want weird stories. Supernatural, dread, unquiet and disquiet, which reflect on the people who were involved, one way or the other, at the top end of the bottom end of the British Empire from 1850 to, uh, to 1905 that high Victorian time, anything from the Ashanti Wars, the Boer War, um, the Indian Mutiny, uh, the Anglo-Sudan Wars, anything from that. Something which has a historical basis or element, but also looks at the darkness underneath. Yes, and no alternate histories, as you've said a few times in the Facebook group. Uh, uh, We're uh, going to have to be careful, because people already want to do Victorian steampunk, which is not, <laughs> not what the collection is about, even though it's great fun. And this is actually yeah. a good point to point out that there is a Facebook group for, you know, building ideas and understanding for what this is going to be about. There is. It can be found easily on Facebook. It is at the moment under the title Imperial Weird, just because that was easiest. And we encourage people to join us and suggest things. We've had all sorts of suggestions already. And Matt and I are very open for the next few weeks to any ideas which people have, contributions from across the globe, men, women, anything, who want to put their oar in and say well, would this work? Would that work? Could we do that? Is this an area of exploration? Um, so, you know, we, we encourage people to join, and we'll be putting out formal guidelines uh, towards the end of November. Okay, sounds excellent. And where can our listeners find you? Oh, find me? Goodness. Um, well, kick, well, I'm on Facebook, but uh, I'm on Facebook quite a lot, far too much, and, of course, kicking around at Grey Dog Tales. Uh, greydocktales.com um, the old website of the weird which is uh, still ploughing away on all sorts of unusual things we have a piece on Edwardian beauty treatments in a couple of weeks okay um, so there you go we look forward <laughs> to that thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure and listeners stay tuned for final words after the break all there is there isn't any more join us next week when we talk to a mystery guest before we end i want to thank our sponsor mr dry's dry cleaning special thanks to robert ronsky jr for starting us on this journey as well as to tiny white and the deadites for our show's theme leaf on a stream thanks to all listen you make this possible remember to rate and subscribe to our show on itunes it makes all the difference and as always everything happens somewhere good night <laughs>